This morning we continue through the New Testament book of Acts, and we are in Acts chapter 7. I invite you to turn there with me now. And of course, if you have your Bibles, it's always good to open it, as opposed to use the one in, uh, in the bulletin there. That way you can familiar, familiarize yourself with the Word of God and become more and more familiar with it. And that way, if you're talking to someone, for example, you're sharing with them about who Jesus is, you can open up your scriptures to the appropriate passages that you need. But in Acts chapter 7, we continue to look at an example of a faithful follower and faithful witness of Jesus Christ. And we saw part number one the last time we were in Acts. Now we look at part number two, and the next week we look at part number three of this example of Stephen, a faithful follower, faithful witness. Last time we saw Stephen in his steadfastness and witnessing to Jesus. And then next week we see that this ends up in his martyrdom. He is the first martyr, one who was killed for the name of Jesus. If you're visiting with us for the first time, you're exploring Christianity. The book of Acts that we're in right now, it takes place after Jesus was crucified and after he had been raised from the dead. And it is all about the crucified and risen Savior working to build his church just as he said he would through the apostles and the others, all through the preaching of the gospel. And in today's passage, again, we have a model for us of what it looks like to be faithful follower, faithful witness of Jesus Christ. And Stephen here, he is a defender of the truth and a preacher of Jesus Christ. If you're looking for a main point to write down, that's our main point. Defender of the truth, preacher of Christ. Stephen here is bold, one of the early disciples of Christ. And it's hard to overrepresent his boldness. Christ had already been arrested, mind you. He had already been beaten, already killed by the leaders of Israel. And then some of the apostles were too, in terms of arrested, beaten, and jailed. All for teaching in the name of Jesus. But nevertheless, despite all of those bad things that are happening to your own family, those who believe in Jesus, Stephen continues in those very footsteps and in that line of teaching... All for the honor of Christ. And as the church and Stephen continue to preach and teach, look at chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 6, verse 7. You see what's happening there. The word of God was increasing. But the, the leaders of Israel, right, they're just so done with this name, with this Jesus guy. You know, they killed him. They want to shut him up. And so they want to shut his disciples up too. So there'd be no more talk about this name of Christ and then at the end of chapter 6, they arrest Stephen in particular, and then they interrogate him just as they did with Jesus. They falsely accuse Stephen of the same thing. They accuse Jesus of blasphemy, that is, speaking against God in his holy name. It's important to understand what these accusations are so that when we turn to chapter 7 and we look through his speech as he defends himself in front of the leaders of Israel, we understand what the charges are and how he uh, addresses these things. If, if you look there at 6.13, 6.13, they accuse him again of this blasphemy that is speaking against God. Especially, you look there, against the temple and against God's law. Against the temple and then against God's law. The temple, of course, was a central place of worship for God, for Old Testament Israel. It was a place where God had determined to meet his people. So you think about all, you know, the awesome, the awesome worship of the people of God as, you know, as a nation. You think about Jerusalem. You think about the temple in Jerusalem. And in fact, there stands Stephen in the council, in the temple, presumably. And when it comes to the law, the law here, we can think of the law. We know the law is the law that God gave the people of Israel in the law of Moses. 
This was how God gave, this is what God gave the people so that they would order themselves and so that they would know how to live because they didn't know how to live themselves. God was helping them because they couldn't govern themselves. And they were known to be the people of the law is distinct from those sinners and things like this. Um, But you know, when Jesus comes up, when Jesus turns up in his ministry, the people accuse him of blasphemy, of speaking against the temple. And then is speaking against the law. I mean, he turns up and he says things like, one greater than the temple is here. He says that in the Gospel of John. He says also in Matthew, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he turns up saying, I am the Lord of the law. I do what I please. And he also says things like this. Guys, if you, if you, you, you can know the Father if you know me. I and the Father are one. And they are so deeply offended here. Many of them had taken, these, these leaders of Israel had taken certain aspects of the Old Testament law and made them gods unto themselves. They had received the law of God, and so they, in some ways, make the law of God gods unto themselves. Take the law of Moses. Though God in His grace and kindness gave them the law, you know, again, because they couldn't govern themselves. If you think back to the book of Exodus, Old Testament Israel. Well, they end up basically, essentially, worshiping the law and not the Lord of the law. I'm sure you guys can understand. You might say, you guys here right now, you might say, I love this idea of perfection, this idea of morality. And maybe you even here today, maybe you, you, you claim to be a Christian, you love this perfection and, and morality and righteousness, but not so much. Right? You don't really seek the God who is perfect. All the goody two-shoes out there. You know what I'm talking about. And then you think about this idea of the tabernacle and the temple. At a certain point in time in history, you can think of the Exodus again. God called Israel to build this temple where God would meet with them. He would reveal himself, and that's how he determined himself to do that. But in the end, they, loved, they end up loving the beautiful temple, which was made with their own hands. And at this point in time, it was built by largely the king of the Jews. And there's a beautiful structure there. They had made it with their own hands, and they loved it more than the God who made their hands and everything else in the universe. They loved the structure more than God and His presence. Just imagine us all being so impressed with who we are, so impressed with what our hands have made and what we've achieved and everything you've built. Well, if that's you, friend, then you know what they wrestle with. They're impressed with themselves, not so much with God the Creator. For many in Israel, they were more in love with themselves and all of their doing than in love with God, who alone is upright and righteous, gracious and merciful. God who reveals Himself for the benefit of the people. It's not that the temple and the law were bad or unimportant. Absolutely not. They were were very good. They were very important to God. It's just that God who gave them to the people, and then the people giving their hearts back to God were infinitely more important. This application is important for us today. I know there's a lot of history, and in fact, chapter 7 is a lot of history. But this is important for us today. It is a temptation for us today to take anything God has given us, and then in the doing of it, like if He calls us to do a certain something, and then in the doing of it, whether for our own glory or to make ourselves feel better, we end up losing God. Even in attending the church gathering, people can forget the God in the attendance. 
We know that God calls his people to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together for encouragement, for the praise of God. But yet how many Christians attend not for God, but for some other reason? Family pressure, because their friends are doing it. Maybe for the sake of their own routine. It's just simply what we do every Sunday. Well, if we struggle to do the thing while not seeking to love and know God in the obedience, then we understand these folks. We too go about our Christianity while missing God and His infinite greatness. And that's the problem with the leaders of Israel. They may want to protect the temple and all of its earthly glory. They may boast in doing the law and possessing the law, but in it all they lost and even rejected the Christ, the giver and fulfillment of the law and the temple. As we go through Stephen's speech at like a 20,000 foot view, we see that Stephen is reminding the leaders of Israel in all of their doing and obedience to turn back to God and see his infinite greatness. Let's walk through Stephen's speech here. And uh, I'm not going to have typical, typical points as I normally do. We're just going to walk through here. Just, just kind of draw out points of emphasis uh, as we go along. We see here, right, as they bring up the temple, Stephen points them to a more important thing. God who has actually revealed himself. The temple's not where it's at. God is where it's at. Again, the temple was important, very important in the history of Israel. The place where God, again, said that he would meet his people. That that better be important. But it was never to be more important than God who reveals himself. Strangely enough, these leaders in Israel were the ones who on one hand said that they loved the temple and the forms of worship that went on in the temple, but then on the other hand rejected God and his presence. How did they do this? Well, they rejected and killed Jesus, Emmanuel, that is God with us. You see the ironies right there? I love God, the God who says he makes himself present, but we could have killed Jesus, the God-man. That's rejecting God and his presence to the highest degree. The temple had served its purposes for a set time, God said, but in the coming of Emmanuel, God with us, the people could go to Christ to meet the God-man who dwelt among us. Of course, Stephen knew the leader's hostile rejection of Jesus. God's holy and righteous one. Here he is standing before the whole council who had killed Jesus. As he's being interrogated, it seems he makes this tactical move as he starts off easy in chapter 7. Just giving you a summary here. And then moving to a crescendo, he lands on this devastating rebuke there in verses 51 to 53. He says, you stubborn people. At the end, we're going to get there. And he points out that they are the ones who rejected God. And have not kept the law. Let me just give you a brief overview of the Stephen speech as a whole. Um, Again, we're going to go over this briefly. He walks them through four periods of their own history. Their own history. The first period is the period of Abraham. Abraham. Second is the period of Joseph. Which comes hundreds of years. Or not hundreds. Sorry. Several generations after Abraham. Then thirdly. This is now hundreds of years later after Joseph. Then you've got the period of Moses. So first period, Abraham, second period, Joseph, third period, Moses. And then the fourth period, some 500 years after, he goes through and eventually lands on David and Solomon. The main point is, look, in your whole history, Israel, you guys know this, Council of Israel, God has always revealed himself, temple or not. And he has revealed himself most fully in Christ. Let's jump into the first period with Abraham. 
Uh, you look there at verses 2 to 8, verses 2 to 8. This is way before uh, God commanded the people to build the tabernacle in the Exodus. It's way before. There's no temple. There's no, there's no law of Moses even. And he says, look, there, even with Abraham, what did God do? God drew near to Abraham and entered into a covenant with his grace. Abraham was saved. God pursued him. Did they know each other? Yes. Look at 2 to 8. Look how Stephen starts off, right? Easing his hearers, talking about the things that they, of course, would agree as good Israelites. Look there, 7-2, the glory of God, what happened? Appeared. And then God went on and said certain things. Verse 5, he made a promise, right? He made a promise to take Abraham and make him into a great people, to bring him into a promised land. And he promised that one from his line would be a blessing to all nations. That's fulfilled in Christ. This kind of three-faceted promise he makes to Abraham. He reveals himself. No temple, no law, but yet God is entering into a covenant. Look there, verse 8. With Abraham, all by God's own accord. He pledges of himself these unbreakable promises for Abraham and his descendants that he would make a people for himself. Again, no temple, no law, but yet there's God revealing himself. He's not bound by a temple. And then in the second period, here, history lesson, guys. Second period with Joseph. Joseph, verses 9 to 17. You go ahead and glance through those. If you don't know the story of Joseph, he's the great-grandson of Abraham. So we might think, okay, well, let me see. Did God actually fulfill his promises? Let's go ahead and see. Sadly, the story of Joseph, the way it goes, is he was envied by his brothers. And one sad day, they basically leave him for dead. He's sold into slavery. They betray him. But what happens? Is God faithful? Does God reveal himself for God's people's good? God, did God come to deliver him? The answer is yes. Verse 9, look there. God was with him and rescued him. And all of this is actually outside of Egypt. Where does God draw near to Abraham in the beginning? In a pagan land. Where does God draw near to Joseph? It's not in Israel. It's actually in Egypt. It's not in the temple land, etc. Verse 10, God gave him favor and wisdom, such that eventually he becomes the number two person in all of Egypt. And in a turn of events... His brothers end up going to him for survival. God was bringing about all of his promises, making for himself a people holy unto his name. So both of those pillars in Israel's history, they genuinely knew God savingly without a temple and even before the law of Moses was given. And then you look at the third period here. You know, we're skipping forward hundreds of years. And then we get to Moses. This is 17 to 43. 17 to 43. He spends a lot of time talking about Moses. Um... No surprise, just as God revealed himself to Abraham and to Joseph, so he did with Moses in his faithfulness to his promises. Verse 17, look there. As the time of promise drew near, right? The time of promise, God had already given a promise, and so he moves in faithfulness, revealing himself to his chosen ones. He moves to fulfill his promise in Abraham as the people increased and multiplied there in Egypt, not Israel. In Egypt, God then brings along Moses. And he grows up as a prince of Egypt. God gave him wisdom. Look there in verse 22. God says that he made him mighty in word and deed. And the council of Israel, mind you, that's interrogating Stephen. Of course, they knew that God revealed himself to Moses. You look there in verse 30. On Mount Sinai, in flaming fire, in the bush, on the mountain, Moses heard the voice of God. No temple. Yet God was faithfully moving, acting, meeting his people to deliver them and save them from slavery. And you can look there in verse 34. 
Verse 34, look at all this action here. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning. I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you. He's talking to Moses, to Egypt. Or send you to Egypt. And all of this, again, is in fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and his descendants. He's making them a people, bringing them into the land making sure that one from his line, that is Jesus, would be a blessing to the world. There on Mount Sinai in, in cloud and thunder and lightning, God gave the law of Moses to the people. God called them in the law of Moses to build himself a tabernacle or, or like, like this tent, for example, where they could worship God and where God would reveal himself and lead them until they reached the land of promise. And that's what they did. They worshiped God according to his law in the tabernacle. For 1,000 years they did this, all the way down into King David's time. This is the fourth period, King David's time. Certainly there were periods where they forgot the temple or they disregarded it, they didn't care about it. But by and large, or you say... In their history, they actually did. Verse 44. And then it was David's son Solomon who ended up building the temple for Israel to worship God. I know that's a lot of history, guys. He's just simply walking through the council through their own history. He's ramping up and ramping up. And then, but then you see here, what's, what's the main highlight there? Verse 48. This is what they forgot. Yet, these people are, you know, they're, they're worshiping almost the temple of God. It was so beautiful. And then worshiping the doing of the law and the law itself having forgot God. And then verse 48, he lands, Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. And here he's quoting the book of Isaiah. 49, verse 49, look there. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Obviously God gave Israel the law and the temple. It is very important, no doubt. We don't want to diminish the fact we don't want to speak in a derogatory way about the temple or the law. Stephen does not do those things. But the law and the temple were never to be the eternal pride of the people. It was God who was to receive all glory and honor. The law and the temple were given so that his people would know and worship him, the giver of these things. And then to take it even further, the law and the temple were given that they might look to him who fulfills them. Again, Matthew 5, 17, Christ says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it in all of his righteousness. He alone is the one who can fulfill it. And then in his arrival, he straight up tells the people again, Matthew 12, 16, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. John 14, 9, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And it is in the, per in the person of Jesus Christ that we can know God, God the Son. And even though it is through Christ that all things are made... Christ takes on flesh, enters into the world he made in order that he would be with us, presence. In order that he would deliver us from our sin through his death on the cross as the true redeemer and savior. Now imagine here the council's reaction. Here's Stephen, lowly Stephen, has no apparent standing before the council giving them this history lesson. <clears throat> it seemed insane to the, to the leaders. Give up the glory of the temple and the supposed standing that comes from the law 
for the glory of this Jesus of Nazareth? There was no standing at all. It was laughable to them. Of course, they were the ones who killed Jesus and persecuted Christ's people. Stephen knew this. So look how he drops the hammer there in verse 51. This is an absolutely stinging rebuke. He says there, you stiff-necked people. In other words, they're stubborn. Uncircumcised in hearts and ears. In other words, they're like pagans, even though they're the ones who have the law. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That's a very stinging rebuke there. And all of a sudden, they are in lot with those who have always rejected the Holy One. You see how you can have the Holy One's temple and the Holy One's law, yet reject the Holy One? That's really informative and instructive for us. We might claim to have all the forms of religion and Christianity and everything else, but yet not have Christ at all. You think about those they persecuted. You think about Jeremiah, the prophet. How in Old Testament Israel persecuted Jeremiah and other prophets. You think about John the Baptist, the one who heralded the coming of the Messiah. And what did they do? They had his head put on a platter. So they are the ones who have always rejected God. And in God making his presence known in Christ the Son, they rejected the Holy and Righteous One. So you feel that sting there in verse 51. As your fathers did, so do you. Look how they respond in their rage. Verse 58. Look there. They dragged him out of the city and they stoned him. Now again, we're going to look more about Stephen stoning and his response next week. But for now, we try and apply some of the truths that we see here. I know there's a lot of history lesson, but try and dial in here for application. A huge lesson here is don't prioritize religiosity over knowing Christ, your maker. Don't prioritize religiosity over knowing Christ, your maker. The Bible says that all things were made through Christ. Even you have been made through Christ and for Christ. Th- these folks here that prioritize religiosity, appreciating the forms, but not God. They wrongly prioritize the physical temple wrongly prioritized the law of Moses. And in their pursuit of religiosity, they lost sight of the truth of God in Christ again. They thought that God was bound by the temple, so they missed God the Son come in the flesh. I wonder if you're tempted in some ways to do the same. You know how you might be doing so? If you're here prioritizing church on Sundays, but you weren't truly seeking God Monday through Saturday... That might be you. You might be prioritizing religiosity, but not God. Or maybe this, maybe you prioritize church for an hour or two on Sundays, but then you choose to live in sin for the rest of the week. You know, there could be a whole lot of reasons why people would attend the church. We're looking at this aspect of Christianity. Certainly God calls us to gather. That is a very good thing for his people. 
But there's different reasons why people might come to church. Maybe it's because you are grasping after some sort of morality. Because you look in the mirror and you see your own hearts and you know that you are not moral. And so you come grasping after some sort of morality because you know that you need help. Help, you want to get your life on track. So you come to church. I knew one guy I used to work with at uh, 24 Hour Fitness back in the day when I was a personal trainer. And he just, he knew, I knew that he was partying and, you know, giving himself to all sorts of immorality. But then one day him and another coworker were talking about church. I had no, no idea he went to church, but then he went on to say, man, I just want to go there and, tell, and have somebody tell me I'm sinful and that if I don't turn, I'm going to go to hell. But then he would go the rest of his week and live in sin and give himself into sin. And in talking with him more, it really seemed like he thought attending church was that thing that washed away immorality. And all he needed to do was turn up to hear somebody, give him a rebuke, and then think, I'm okay, it's time to go on, and just jump back into sin. He was trying to absolve himself of some sort of guilt, actually, that he was running from. Maybe he thought, maybe you think, that merely attending church is like the holy deed that rights all wrongs. Let me just say that regardless of why you've come, whether it be, you know, friends want you to come, family wants you to come, maybe you are grasping after some sort of morality, maybe you are trying to absolve yourself of some sort of guilt, I'm actually glad that you're here. Even if you came for those reasons, the reason why is because I get to tell you And we get to tell you that's not what Christianity is about at its foundation. I know that sounds silly, right, if you're exploring Christianity. Christianity, in terms of its foundation, is not about getting free from guilt. It's not about getting free from the shame that I experience for wrongdoing. It's not about morality at its foundation. The answer is actually no, it is not. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about, at its foundation, being reconciled to your maker. It's about being reconciled to your creator through Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This is what the leaders of Israel forgot. And it is what they rejected. You can tell. They persecuted God's prophets and to call them out of sin and back to God. Not back to mere morality. Or not back to merely freedom for some sense of freedom from guilt and shame. It is those things, but all of them fall underneath being reconciled to God. And if they killed the ones who announced the coming of God's righteous one who dies on the cross for sin, they go on and kill Jesus Christ, the righteous one himself. The fulfillment of all of God's Old Testament promises clearly They reject God himself. Christians are those who have our own customs, certainly, as God commands, like attending church. He calls us to gather to give him praise, like singing, like we have done, praying, things like this, hearing the word of God. But we are people who have been reconciled to God, our creator and king, as we have all rebelled against God in our own sin. The Bible clearly says that. He created us to be in a relationship with him. We rebelled against him. We set up our own thrones in his kingdom, which is treason. We say, forget you, God. I'm living according to my own rule and my own law. Pursue myself, not you. And so we rebel. We earn for ourselves just judgment, even in hell, the Bible says. But God, in seeking reconciliation, get this, guys. God, in seeking reconciliation, reaches out to sinners to renew the relationship that we messed up. 
So he does this with Abraham in Ur. So he does this with Joseph in Egypt. So he did this with Moses in Egypt. So he does this in David's time and Solomon's time. Throughout it all, God reaches out to sinners. Graciously, and his kindness reveals himself most clearly and finally in Christ, the God-man. He lives the perfect life. We could not, fulfilling all of the law's demand as the righteous one, dies on the cross for the sins of his people, bearing the sin and the wrath that we deserved. Three days later, he gets up from the dead, showing now that where once the death penalty was over us, but since he has taken it, we are now free. And now he says that all who call on his name will be saved. Reconciled to God the Creator who has reached out in love to establish a new relationship. Now, don't get me wrong, guys. Think about the benefits that come with salvation. There are very clear benefits. Forgiveness is a benefit. Shame being lifted from our shoulders because Christ has taken it is a benefit. Freedom from guilt is a benefit. Life with purpose, more joy, more happiness, more peace. There's so many benefits, but all of these benefits come through knowing God in Jesus Christ. Can't get the benefits any other way. In some ways, the the leaders of Israel were going for the benefits without the knowledge of God. We love the forms here. We love the law. They forgot God. They're wanting the benefits in some ways, forgetting God. In some ways, those who go about Christianity and the customs without really seeking God, the Creator, right? They're saying, just just give me the benefits without relationship. Give me the benefits. Just don't bother me with, with you and me. You know what those people are called in real human life, like man to woman relationship? Not lovers. Thinking about this on Valentine's Day. Not lovers. Gold diggers. They're called gold diggers. Just give me the benefits, but not the person. Loving the gifts, but not the giver. Seeking the benefits, but not the benevolent benevolent one. Just think about that. It's crazy, right? Sometimes we, as Christians, think we adopt this mindset. It's like we stroll up to Jesus on his throne and we demand our own terms. But with God, who is the sovereign creator, we know that it is God who sets the terms. But guess what? If this is new to you, guess what? In his love, he sets the terms in our favor and for our benefit and for our good. Where we were blind to God, like the leaders of Israel were, God sends the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, entered into the world, so that the blind would see and the deaf would hear. Where we were dead in our sins and transgressions, the Son of God came to die for us, So we would have life. Where we deserve the wrath of God for rebelling against him, God laid the wrath of God upon Jesus. And Christ went to the cross for the joy that was set before him, so we would not have to. And the life Christ wins for his people in his resurrection, we get to live it in him. Praise the Lord that in his grace and mercy, he has made a way in Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. If you want to know God, he's not bound to a temple. He's not bound in the building of this church or any church structure. You can genuinely know him. As God is not bound by 
temple walls or building walls. This means, friends, that you can call on him right here, right now. You can know not only the benefits, but God, the benevolent one yourself, if you repent of your sins and believe on him. You have the opportunity here to learn from these stiff-necked Israelites who always resist the truth of God given in the Holy Spirit. They appreciated, supposedly, right? They appreciated. They went after the benefits while rejecting the benevolent one. And all the while, the benevolent one was right before them in the flesh, whom they hung on a cross, laid in the grave, thinking that they had victory over him. And in a wild turn of events, it is God, of course, of course, who has the victory as he raised Jesus from the dead, from the dead so that we sinners could be saved. Repent of your sins. Know God, and you will know him and all of his benefits in Jesus. Stephen knew this, to conclude here. That's why he was faithful and bold. Even though those he knew were stiff-necked and blind, yet he held out that the one who can deliver them could deliver them from their sins. He knew that salvation was found in Christ alone. And so in speaking, he was being a faithful follower of Christ, a faithful witness to Christ for God and the good of his hearers. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do give you praise as you are the sovereign one. We know according to the word of God here that we've just looked at that you do not dwell in houses made by hands. Instead, you everything has been made by you and for you. How amazing is it then that in the incarnation, God the Son, Lord Jesus Christ, you took on flesh and entered into the world you made so that we would know you more. God, we pray that we would never prize aspects of religiosity or your commands over you, the one who has given them to us, the Lord of the law. We pray, God, that we would always be directing people's eyes to Christ, the Lord and Savior, who stands even right now in your word, holding out your hands to people, to sinners calling us to turn from our sins that we might be saved. Help us see that you are indeed the holy, the righteous one, the one to whom all of your Old Testament promises point to, the one who fulfills them all. So, Lord, we pray that where the righteous demands were upon us, pray, God, that we would see so clearly that you are the one who has met those demands for your people. Help us see, too, that there on the cross, you were the one who won salvation for all who would ever repent of their sins and believe. Help us be faithful, God. Help us be faithful to you as we hold out the gospel to those around us so that they too might know you and be reconciled to you and know all of your benefits of salvation in Christ. In your name we pray, amen.